Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. If we could close those doors and close those doors. Todd's not coming, so uh, there's going to be a rush to the exits here. It's like, wait, I thought Todd was on for today. Sorry, you got, you got a curveball thrown to you. There's been a change in the lineup. And so uh, I'm here today, and I'm glad to be because I get to follow up from last week. And we did Daniel 3 last week, a man and his friends, or Daniel 1, and then now Daniel 6, a man and his God, and so it gives the opportunity to spend, for me, two weeks in a row in Daniel and see some connections there, and so I'm really glad for that. So I'm sorry for you. I've prayed for you already this morning that your disappointment won't be so great and that you'll be able to hang in there. Uh, you may or you may not recall that the way we started last week was in thinking through a man and his friends that I sort of made the general statement that there's a danger in being super spiritual, acting like I don't need the provisions that God's given to me. I don't need food. I can go without. I can fast throughout Lent. I can do all that because I only need God. God's all I need. And I don't need money. And I don't need, you know, just on and on and on it goes, all these things. And I don't need friends. And a lot of guys particularly think I don't need friends. I've got God. What a friend we have in Jesus. That's all I need. Well, but God has said it's not good for the human being to be alone. And marriage certainly was an answer to that, but not just marriage, for our single friends as well. They need us, we need them. We need friendships as well as marriages and sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters. So otherwise we're in danger of being this sort of super spiritual Christian that thinks that by all of my uh, works of super irrigation, remember that word, you know, above and beyond the call of duty, I'm gonna earn my way into heaven. Well, one more illustration of that super spiritual uh, mentality that we'll carry on into this is um, a story I once heard from Lane Adams. Many of you know Lane Adams as well, but I don't think he told it while he was here. Um, I heard it from him years after he had already left from here, but it's a powerful story of super spirituality. It's a story that's told of the monastery where monks had for century after century after century been pouring through their ancient texts. And one of the tasks of the novitiate monks was to go into the cellar and to get into the archives way back there and to make copies because some of the older books are falling apart. And so they're making copies constantly, these beautiful manuscripts. Well, one new monk came into the monastery one day and he was told to, to make the copies and he did, but he began to wonder, wait, I'm copying from a copy. Don't we every once in a while at least need to go back to the original and make sure that we've got the right text? Because if we don't, we're gonna just end up having a mistake that is perpetuated generation after generation after generation. He went to the abbot of the monastery and told him his concern. The abbot went, well, okay, I guess that's fine. I mean, I'll go down and check the archives in the lock box, and this is the original that we got from our founder centuries ago. So he went down and they hadn't seen him for the rest of the day. They got time for dinner and they still hadn't seen him and they, they became concerned for his well-being. So several of them went down the stairs looking for him in the cellar. They finally found him around the corner um, in this old, old archival room with this old manuscript and he is just sobbing. He's just inconsolate. They go, come on, it's okay. What, what's wrong? What could be possibly wrong? He's just saying, the word was celebrate. Celebrate. 
Some of you are going to get that at a coffee break this morning. You're going to go, now I got it, now I got it. So uh, God's good gifts to humanity are to be gratefully received and not to be scorned as though I'm above that, I don't need that. We're all to be able to enter into God's good gifts. He made everything, and everything that he made is good. So thank you, Lord, for all of your good gifts. I want to begin a little bit differently today, not talking about the dangers of being super spiritual, but rather about the necessity of being spiritual. I'm not saying be super spiritual, but I am saying that all of us need to be spiritual if we're to be in touch with the ultimate reality as it truly is. So we're going to talk a lot about that. And the man and his God is built on this foundation that we desperately need to be spiritual. Otherwise, we are complete materialists, spiritual material. Those are the contrasts. And the consistent and ongoing materialist just says there is nothing in this world other than that which I can see, hear, taste, touch, measure with my instruments. That's all there is. So you can talk about the ghost in the machine, meaning some soul that you have, but that's not really true. It's just your brain, and we can look at your brain. And so everything is material. I don't think we can have uh, a, a meaningful life. I don't think we can understand reality if we're going to cut off a whole part of reality that is unseen. So we're going to look through this whole chapter of Daniel 6, and we're going to see eight different facets that build upon one another of the man and his God. We're going to come to a conclusion about men, such as we are, and our relationships with God. Again, you know, men think, I don't need friends. Many men think, I don't need God. That's, that's for women. That's for children. That's for vacation Bible school. That's for women's Bible studies. I don't need God. Well, I'm probably preaching to the choir here. You got up at 6.30 in the morning to come read your Bible about God. So maybe you understand that you need God. But what we really need about God is we need to know him better and better, more and more deeply. I want a closer walk with him than what I've had. And that's what we're going to learn about as we look through Daniel chapter 6. You think, eight points, really? Gosh, that's a lot even for amen. I mean, that's, that's, I don't know if you're going to be able to do that in an hour or 40, however much time we have left. Um, I think we can. Because think, eight points, that's not that hard. That's do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. That's eight points right there. I just gave them the whole octave. So think of this as an octave of uh, richness and beautiful harmony on the man and his God. We're going to begin the story not with chapter 6, verse 1, but in the previous context. We're going to pick up where we left off last time. The man and his friends. I want you to think about the man and his God with his, his friends are now behind him. We haven't heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, since chapter 3. We encountered them in chapter 1 last time. Chapter 2, dream from Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel saves the day in interpreting that dream. Chapter 3, um, they're supposed to bow down to the image that's made in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, likeness, and they refuse, and so they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and they're spared. We don't know where Daniel was on that occasion. We don't know where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are on this occasion. But here's the point. Yes, God has given us friends to help us, to encourage us, but there will be not maybe, there will be times in your life when even your closest friend cannot 
help you. Is not there. You can't even reach him on the phone. Maybe he's dead, and you've got 10 more years of your life without him. What will I do? I'm going to rely on my God. I'm going to make other friends, too, so I'm not taking anything away from what we said last time, but I am going to stress the necessity of being spiritual, of having a relationship, a personal relationship, an experiential relationship with the one true and living God through his son, Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. That's what, that's incredible that we get that opportunity. That's what Daniel is all about. The whole Old Testament is all about pointing to this one like a son of man who's going to come and to make everything right. The one who walked in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and spared them, having a personal relationship with him is what the Bible is all about. That's what our lives are all about. So when your friends are left behind, you need God. I need God. And that's the situation that pertains at the beginning of chapter 6. It's a different time frame than when we checked in with uh, these characters in chapter 1. It's at least 50 years later now. Daniel's a very old man, having been a young man when he came into the service of the king, but after 50 years of that service, he's getting to be older. And this chapter is going to describe, uh, well, it's, it picks up after the defeat of the Babylonian Empire and the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. So let's, uh, <clears throat> let's get ready to see then. No friends around, but uh, what's going to happen with Daniel as he is just hemmed in only to his God. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials. All right, we can stop there and just see his friends are behind him, his king is for him. That's, that's pretty awesome that his king is for him. That's, that's going to bode well for Daniel. If the king's on your side, then, then all is well. But that's not necessarily true. That there are dangers and temptations that come with success that people who don't have success don't know about. The temptation to pride becomes greater with success. The temptation to think, I don't really need God. I don't need anybody else becomes greater with success. So here he is enjoying the favor of the king and looking like he is on top of the world. He has now been elevated to one of the top three positions in the entire kingdom and is on his way to becoming number one. And as we'll see, it doesn't necessarily go well. But you think about just because I have the king's favor does not set me up um, for a life of meaning and purpose. And I'm speaking to people who know this. I mean, many of you know this. That success, as great as it is and as hard as we've worked to achieve it, is ephemeral. It's gone quickly. Doesn't really satisfy. So success. you're a success? Which one of you wants to tell me that you were a success or that you are a success in life? Are you ready to sign up? Say, I've been a success. Most of you, even the rest of us, would point to say, well, that guy could stand up and say he's been a success. And he'll say, well, no, I'm not nearly as much as that other guy over there. And so you realize, I, I'm not sure I'm a success. And that guy that everybody would point to say, oh, he's clearly a success, probably isn't here because he doesn't think he needs God. So there's a real danger 
that comes with success, a temptation, a temptation to think, I can do it myself. It's a temptation that is very alive and well at Second Presbyterian Church in East Memphis, Tennessee. Wow, we, we got some issues here. Something's come up in the church. I don't know if you all have heard about it yet, but there's this crisis. I'm, I'm kidding. This is hypothetical. But there's this, I, you could probably say it any day of the week. There's a crisis, and what will we say? That's not a problem. Have you seen our elders? Our elders are awesome. They all run businesses. They, they are outstanding in their fields. Well, the farmers are. Some of the other guys, maybe not. But, but they're, uh, they're all outstanding in their fields. They can fix this. We'll put a task force together. We'll study best practices. We, can, we have resources to bring to this crisis. And all of a sudden, we're not quite so spiritual anymore. We're becoming material, just what we can manufacture with ourselves. We can do this. We've got, we've got people of means in this congregation. We can, we can throw enough money at it, and we'll be able to fix it. No, you can't. But we think we can. Um, this temptation of success that I've got the money, I've got the person power, I've got the expertise, we've got the best practices, we have the education, we have the this, that. Yeah. We have God, and that's our only hope of being able to fulfill the Great Commission and be able to fulfill our mission as a church. If the Lord does not help us, woe is us. But if he does help us, we're in good, good shape. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, our Lord Jesus said. So, temptation of success, you can forget John 15, 5, because you're doing well, everything's going great. That's a problem. I just realized that I forgot to tell you about, in our first point, about his friends are behind him. Uh, there are temptations that come with isolation, and I forgot to mention that to you, but I will. Let's uh, look back at the beginning. When his friends are behind him, there are the temptations of isolation. There are different kinds of temptations that come when we're left alone. David, right, we all think of that. David left alone. He didn't go off to war in the spring of the year as he should have. He stayed at home. He's kind of bored. There's no TV to watch. There's no Internet to plug into. And so um, he goes up on the roof and is just walking around trying to get cool or whatever and sees this woman bathing down here and quickly says, you know, I can't keep the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from building a nest in my hair. Therefore, I'm going to look away and not go back to that. Now, that's what you would have said, but David looked again, looked again and again and brought her on and then all hell broke loose because he was alone. He didn't have anybody around. Jonathan wasn't there to go, hey, hey, David, don't go there. No, no. He wasn't accountable with anybody else. He was the king. I mean, good grief. I don't need anybody else. There are great temptations that come from isolation. And I can say that perhaps most forcibly from looking at the New Testament and looking at the hero of all heroes, our Lord Jesus. And on the night in which he was betrayed, after he had taken the cup and he had given the bread, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And according to Matthew, um, chapter 26, in his account, this is how it went down. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, 
My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Stay here. Watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, the second time he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came. He found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Leaving them again, he went away, prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came back to the disciples and said, Hey, sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. All by himself. No Peter saying, I'm with you, Lord. I got your back. I'm going to be with you to the end. Remember, I've got there. James and John say, I've got your right hand. I've got your right hand. Just hold them up like Aaron's hands being held up by um, these people on the right and on the Lord. Moses' hands, Aaron and Joshua holding up his hands. I'm, we, we're right there with you. Lord, hang in there. Nobody. They'd all fallen asleep. So isolation brings great, great dangers. We need to be particularly vigilant when we're isolated from Christian fellowship from other brothers and sisters. Here is Daniel, his friends far behind him. They may be dead by this point. We don't know. It's 50 years later or more. So we don't know. But they're far behind him. Nobody there. And when this crisis occurs in Daniel 6, he's alone. The way to overcome the temptations of isolation is to recognize, I'm not isolated. I've got my God with me. And therefore, I never need to be without a conversation partner wherever I am in the world. As long as I have life, I can be talking to God. So we'll have more to say about that in just a moment. All right, so his friends behind him, the temptations of isolation. His king is for him, but that brings the temptations of success. His peers, in verses 4 through 9, are against him. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against David with regard to the kingdom. They couldn't find ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we're not going to find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Their common lot, all of these peers of Daniel, these other satraps, commissioners, high officials, is they're all envious of Daniel. Daniel's above all of them. And the other two that are up there with him in the top three are threatened. It says um, just before it that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So they all have this in common, that they're sort of underneath Daniel, that they're all in Daniel's shade, that he's just an incredible figure, and they can't find any fault with him whatsoever. And so that's their common lot. We're sort of inferior to him. So they come up with a common plot. Verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot 
be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. The plot thickens. Daniel's on top of the world. And then all of a sudden, people don't like him. Envy, jealousy are very common human experiences. You have envied and been jealous of others, and there are others, believe it or not, who envy you and are jealous of you. And that brings the temptations of relative success. There are temptations with success, a temptation to pride, a temptation to think I can go it alone, but the temptations of relative um, success are envy, jealousy, that I've been very successful. I have been the vice president of, in charge of operations of all of AutoZone. I mean, I'm really up there, and that's great. You, you know, you're back at your 50-year high school reunion, and they go, yeah, but so who was the president? How come you weren't president? You are just vice president? <laughs> well, yeah, but that's pretty good, wasn't it? No, it's vice president. I mean, who, who signs up to be the vice president, you know? One day I grow up, I'm going to be the vice president of the United States. You know, like, no. Abraham Lincoln's going, I'm going to be the president of the United States. And I could be the president of that. I could have been a contender. I could, I could be that. And so we get into those temptations of relative success. All of these satraps, all of these high officials. I want to be like Daniel. I want to be like Daniel. I want that success that he's got. And so they do what many of us do. To make me feel better about myself, I'm not going to try to improve myself by spending more time with the Lord and, and in fellowship and trying to grow. I'm just going to bring everybody else down a notch. So it'll be my mission in life to talk about, well, vice president, isn't that great? Too bad you weren't president. And uh, how big is that company? Uh, that's, I mean, there are bigger companies out there. You could have been the vice president. Just bring you down. And by bringing you down, that will bring me up, in my mind at least, which is not true, but it feels that way. So we want to bring everybody down a notch, knock them off their pedestal, so that I feel better about myself. That's a temptation. And with other temptations, it is to be met with resistance. And don't go there. I'm not going to be jealous of the success of others. I am going to accept my lot in life from my God, and I'm going to say that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I'm going to say with Paul, I have learned the secret of being content with what I have. I am committed to Psalm 75, 6 and 7, that it is not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert that exaltation comes. But God is the judge. And he picks up one and puts down another. It's in his hands. It's not in my hands. He wanted me to be a vice president. He didn't want me to be a president. And I'm fine with that. And I'll glorify him to the best of my ability in the station in life to which he has called me. There's a temptation of relative success. We need to meet that temptation with resistance and we come before our God and say, Lord, I'm content. I believe you're sovereign over that. There's an old Jewish story that's told of two brothers and sibling rivalry never was intense as it was with these two brothers. They could not abide the other or one of them particularly was just eaten up with jealousy. An angel of the Lord appeared to him one day and said to him, I have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is that I am going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. 
in all of your longing and thinking of how much money you might accumulate in your life, you're going, I will give you way more than you ever even thought possible. In terms of position, high position, I'm going to raise you higher than you ever thought. In terms of wife, uh, beauty, whatever, I'm going to give you a more beautiful wife than you ever thought you could have gotten. And more children than you ever dreamed of. I'll do all of that for you. He's thinking, oh, what could be bad? I mean, what's the bad news? I think it'll be bad news to you to realize that I'm going to do that for you. But whatever I give to you, I'm going to give twice as much to your brother. The man didn't hesitate. He said, all right, I know what I want to ask for. Okay, what is it? Make me blind in one eye. Now that is the temptation of relative success. You know, if I can't have more than he has, and I'm, I'm so spiteful, I'm so eaten alive with this rivalry that it'll choke your soul. So beware. Daniel's friends are behind him. He knows the temptations of isolation. Daniel's king is for him. He knows the temptations of success. His peers are against him, and he knows the temptations then of relative success. Here we come to the high water mark of the whole chapter in verse 10. We learn something about Daniel in relationship to his God. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel understands that in the midst of all of this world with all of its temptations, temptations of success, relative success, of isolation, whatever, that God is a constant. God is always there. And no matter how successful I ever am, God is still above me. So God is above Daniel here, and he recognizes that, he sees that, and that's very, very important to him. The temptation that could have come to Daniel at this point in time is the temptation of eminence. And that's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, eminence. Now, there are two other ways of doing eminence. Uh, I should have looked here to see if it got on here. Um, it'll be on page two if it is. Uh, no? Okay, well, anyway, I put the other two spellings in there, uh, too, thinking that you would get those as well. We talk about someone being eminent. That means that high rank, high prestige. That's not the sense in which I'm using eminence here. We think of something that could happen at any moment. Coming through that door at any moment. His arrival is imminent. That's I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. But when I say imminent, meaning I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, I'm referring instead to he's near. He's close to us. He's like us, as opposed to far away, and we'll see the opposite um, danger in just a minute. There is a danger with God. It is true. God is eminent. He is also transcendent. He is near. He is also far above and beyond. So with the temptations um, uh, of eminence, what I have in mind is the kind of error that I think uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner got into in his blockbuster book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. 
You know the solution to the problem of pain that is presented in that book? The problem of pain being God is great. He can destroy evil. If God is good, he would destroy evil. Nevertheless, evil exists. Therefore, there can't be a God who is both great and good. Rabbi Kushner comes alongside with that and says, well, um, God created a world of free creatures. And his intent was that with that freedom, there would be consequences, but he would have to take the risk of those consequences. So God's doing the very best he can with this world of free creatures. And so he hates it that that car accident happened and that your child was killed. He hates it. It's terrible. But what can God do? I mean, he can't control all the drivers and all the stuff there. He hates it um, that that police officer was shot by that um, gun. He hates it that that black young man was shot by that police officer unjustly. It shouldn't have happened. He, he hates it. But what can God do? I mean, God can't intervene against someone's free will. So what we have is a God who is not transcendent high above us. It's a God who's very much closer down to us. And he can empathize. He can cry with us. But he can't fix things. And that's a huge price to pay to solve a problem that, that can be solved in a better way. To hold on tightly to God is great and God is good. And how can that be since we have so much pain and suffering and evil in this world? God is wise. This is not the best of all possible worlds, but it is the best way to achieve the best of all possible worlds. And the chapter at the end has not been written yet. So hang in there. Continue to trust him even when you don't see. And that's the answer that Job got at the end of the book. Now, were you there when I put the whole universe thing together? Do you understand all the intricacies of it and how it all works? He puts his hand over his mouth and says, I didn't know what I was talking about. So now that's an answer for the head. We need an answer for the heart too, for sure. But anyway, that'll help you see the danger of the temptation to eminence is to believe that our God's not that high above us. He's not able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we dare even ask or think. And that would be an error. We would be in danger if we ever came to that. Just read that verse again. Verse 10. By yourself for a moment. Just Here's what I don't want you to focus on. He knew that the document had been signed in the law of the Medes and the Persians. You can't pray to any other god except King Darius who is probably, you think, well, we don't know a lot about him from the other historical records. Well, we do know a little bit about a key general that Cyrus left in charge after his um, initial conquest of Babylon. And so that's who this King Darius probably is, a good baru, one of his generals. Um, but um, he signs this, thing, this document, and Daniel goes home and does what he's always done. He prays three times a day facing Jerusalem. And the temptation is, I want to be like Daniel. I'm going to pray three times a day. I'm just praying once. Now, I'm just praying twice. I'm going to get back to the discipline praying three times a day. And I'm going to pray on my knees because that's more spiritual than praying in another posture. The Bible doesn't tell us the posture that we're all supposed to use to pray. You do not get points of super arrogation because you got on your knees. If your knees are good, then flat on your face is better, right? And if flat on your face looking sharp is good, then flat on your face in sackcloth is better. And, if, and so 
we, gotta, we run into that danger again of trying to, I'm going to be so super spiritual that God has got to answer my prayers. You just pour out your heart to your heavenly Father and let my posture show my attitude toward him, which is humble. So to get on your knees, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a question of why are you doing that? That's an example here. It's not a command to pray on your knees. To pray three times a day. Well, if three is good, seven's better. Isn't seven the number of perfection in the Bible and all that? So I'm going to pray seven times a day. Now, that's a short step from being a monk praying seven times a day to bring a monk who is celibate instead of celebrating. So, so just beware. That is the temptation to read verse 6 and think, I want to be more like Daniel. i got to screw up my courage better, get more disciplined. Be a, I'm going I'm to be here at 6 o'clock or at 5.30. I'm going to help set up for Amen Bible study, and that's really going to get me points. Be careful. The hero of Daniel chapter 6 is not Daniel. It's God who is far above him, and that's the one to whom Daniel appeals. My God who is far above me. In uh, his book, Death in the City, Francis Schaeffer has an appendix to the book, and it's called The Universe in Two Chairs. And it's just trying to break a stark contrast between the materialist and the spiritualist. <clears throat> that one person believes in God, and one person believes in only that which he can see, taste, touch, feel, hear. So they're in, the, let's say that this room is the entire universe. We see it right here and everybody else is gone, there are just the two of us. One sitting there, who's the materialist. One sitting there, who's the spiritualist. And they study, that this is the whole universe, so they study it carefully, measuring, um, you know, making all kinds of observations that they can make, doing everything to thoroughly examine this universe, which exists right in this room. Having come up with all of their combinations and permutations of everything out there, they present their findings one to the other. They corroborate with one another, and they say, now we understand the universe. And this guy says, well, no, not really. Yeah, we do. No, we haven't taken into account that's what we can't see, taste, feel, hear. What's that? Well, God, angels, demons, a whole other part of reality that you're not accounting for. And it all comes down to the clock on the back of the wall, which we probably need right now, but we don't have one. But anyway, clock on the back of the wall stops, and each one of them sitting in his chair, and each one of them looks. And the one says, one of us has got to go get up there, find the ladder, get up there, and change the battery in that clock or get it going again. And this guy in this chair says, that's true, one of us could, but there's a third op uh, option that neither you nor I goes and does that, but I pray, and the God who made this universe starts it again. We easily become functional materialists. We live our lives as if there is no unseen God of the universe who can bring something out of nothing, who can make a way out of no way, who can come in and make my life circumstance totally turn on its head because of he's doing it for his glory. I, we act like that's not true. Even though we say with our lips it's true, but we are functional materialists sitting in the materialist chair. And part of why we don't pray, like Daniel, is because we don't believe it really makes any difference. 
Wait. Do you believe that there is a God? That he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? That he is able to do all things? Nothing is impossible with God. That he's good. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Do you believe all of that? Then believe it and act on it and sit in that chair, not in the materialist's chair. There's a grave danger of eminence. Everything's just brought down to our level. Everything's brought down to the material world. And we forget God is above us. Next point. Moving right along. Verse 11. His king is now perplexed about him. Then these men came by agreement, by agreement, by agreement. That's a clear plot. And they have made this plot together. And they found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, um, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, Yep, a thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Well, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction, or transcend, uh, no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Here we see this king perplexed about Daniel, wondering what on earth is up. And here is the root of his perplexity. He's caught. He loves Daniel. He likes Daniel. He's most impressed with Daniel of all of the 120 satraps and high officials. He wants to make Daniel number one under him. So third in command in the whole kingdom, Cyrus, Gaburu, and then Daniel. And now they have tricked him. His peers who are jealous have tricked him into binding himself on something. It illustrates the temptations of power. And here we have this, this tyrant this complete despot, he is in charge in that town at that time. They could appeal to Cyrus, but he's the one that issued the decree, so he's the one that could abolish the decree if he wanted to. But no, it's written according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. So what's that? Am I not the king of the Medes and the Persians? Forget the law. I'm going to do what I want to do. So I'm saving Daniel, and you guys are sorry and jealous and get over it. But he doesn't do that. He says, oh, I did give my word, and so now i got to keep it. A pope 
that really seriously believes in papal infallibility when he takes the Holy See, the seat of St. Peter, and issues an utterance, better be very careful what he says. Because once you say it, it's infallible. You've got to defend it. So you don't say very much. Because you realize, that's, I, I can't keep that standard. And sure enough, Darius illustrates it perfectly well. I made a rash law. It was dumb. Why can't I just come back and say, hey, that was a stupid idea, bad law. Daniel, we all know, is great. We can't find any fault in him. So let's just forget the whole thing and start over. Oh, no, 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 no. The law of the Medes and the Persians, the law of the Medes and the Persians. You're a great, infallible king and emperor. So what's he do? He's perplexed. What do I do about Daniel? And he says something remarkable. Okay, let's do it. It's got to stand by the law of the Medes and the Persians. My word is more important than my will. That I cannot arbitrarily go against my word because I don't like that word anymore. My word is my bond, and I've got to go with that. There is only one potentate in the history of humanity with all of the kingdoms that Daniel 2 lays out, Daniel 4 lays out, there's only one completely absolute ruler who's been able to say, whatever I say, I will do. And that is the sovereign God, King of kings and Lord of lords. No human ruler ever been able to do that. And very few human rulers are able to say, I was wrong. I, I, didn't, I messed up. Please forgive me. Here we have sort of the beginnings of the Magna Carta in 1215. King John and the princes and Runnymede or whatever, that they come together and say, you've got to sign this great charter that says that the law is above you. And no king was eager to sign such a law. In the 17th century, there was a Scottish Puritan minister named Samuel Rutherford who wrote a very famous treatise um, entitled in the Latin, Lex Rex. The law is king. Law, Lex, Rex is king in Latin. The law is king. And the alternative is that the king is law. And that was most of the oriental despots said, no, I am the law. Or as Louis XIV famously said it, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. The state is, is I. Uh, and so I'm going to be the one in charge of everything. And here we have, no, you are not in charge. Your word is going to bond you. We're going to hold you to a constitution or to a covenant. So the king in Israel was not above the covenant. No, he was to have a copy of the law beside him at all times that he might do whatever he did informed by that law and not just going off capriciously on his own whim. No, the law is king. You are not king. You are under a constitution. You are under the rule of God. And whatever ruler is out there needs to recognize that. So one of the things that I pray for government officials more than anything else I pray is that they might have the fear of the Lord that they would have a reverence and awe of God, recognizing that I am not the highest of the high, that there is one above me to whom I will one day give an account and that that will keep them from corruption, from injustice, from doing something wrong because of that fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of all wisdom. The um, famous quote from Lord Acton, who said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely, is a very good quote, right on target. Power does. The temptations of power are that you get more and more power, and you think, I am the great Oz. I can do whatever I want to do. 
and that's a very unhealthy place to be. The temptation of power needs to be met with the resistance, again, to put myself under another. I am under God. I am subject to his word. I will answer to him. And again, power is relative. So everybody here has some power in your family, over yourself, at your workplace. How are you using that power? Do you feel like, I am the, I'm the king of my castle here at home? And are you strutting around with your chest out, making pronouncements to tell this one this? Or are you gentle, nurturing your family, living your power? Yes, you have power, but you dial it down and you always keep that power under the control of the one who made you and the one to whom you will give an account. Let's keep pushing. His God is with him, verses 19 to 23. Well, then, at the break of day, after a sleepless night for the king, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the mouths of, from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The hero of this chapter is not Daniel, it's God. And Daniel knows that. And he says, Daniel, are you safe? And Daniel says, yeah. My God sent an angel, he shut the lion's mouth. My God is the subject of the sentence. My God did it. I didn't do it. My God did it. And that's good for all of us to remember. Yes, we could probably be obnoxious about that. And at the company uh, recognition ceremony, you say, I just want to say, everybody, I mean, my God did this. My God gave me all those sales. My God, that, that's true, but that's not the right place maybe to say all of that. A humble thank you for your recognition, sit down or give thanks to all the people that made it possible, but it, God's the hero. God's the hero. Here, we see the opposite danger or temptation. There are temptations um, that come from eminence of making our God too low and not recognize he's above us. But here we see that God was with Daniel. He was with Daniel even in the lion's den. And now we begin to recognize the dangers of transcendence, of having a God who is only high above you, but never comes down close to you, never near you. No, our God is both transcendent and imminent, and we need to capture both sides of that, and we need to recognize that just as there were dangers of having a God too low, too like us, there's a God, the danger of having a God who's too far away, and temptations come with that when we think he's too far out there, he's too far away, he doesn't care about me. He does care about us. He cares about us so much that he urges us to cast our care upon him. He gave himself for us. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. It's so encouraging that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Frankly, one of the dangers of temptations in transcendence is hyper-Calvinism. You want to know what a hyper-Calvinist is? It's any Calvinist who is more Calvinistic than I am is a hyper-Calvinist. So 
I represent the perfect balance within Calvinism, within understanding of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings. I have found the golden mean. So you can measure all Calvinism right through me. And the hyper-Calvinists are those that are more Calvinistic than I am. And then the Arminians or anybody that's less Calvinistic than I am. Okay, good. Thank you for laughing. That is good. That's, that's not the truth. But that is what you think. You don't think it about me. You think it about you. Anybody that's a little more Calvinistic than you are, they're hyper-Calvinistic. They've gone too far. Um, it's famous to, be, to tell this story in Presbyterian ordinations. I even feel like I may have told it to you before. It's one of those deja vu kind of things, but what the heck, it's going to be my future here. I'm going to be telling the same story a thousand different times. But at an ordination service in an old Presbyterian church, they would grill these young candidates that came in and ask them their Bible content, but particularly on theology. They loved to get them. They'd say, you know, spell eminence, you know, as the eminence of God. And, you know, oh, you got it wrong. You don't understand. And spell postmillennialism. And, you know, uh, help me. What is postmillennialism? What's panmillennialism? What's two seed in the spirit, double predestinarian Baptist church? What do they believe? And, you know, you're just kind of, oh, wow, this is tough. That's a real church, by the way. Just checking it. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, you. You, you wonder what, so here's this guy, he's just sweating bullets, he's been up there for three hours already, and he's going to finally, everybody knows what's coming, because the old minister comes up and asks him the question that always stumps the young guys, how would you answer it? He looks at Romans chapter 9, verse 3, he says, Paul said he was willing to be accursed, cut off from the people of God for the sake of his people Israel and for the glory of God. Young man, I have a question for you, are you willing to be damned for the glory of God? It's three hours into this thing. He's been just beat up one side and down the other. He goes, I need to be honest with you, sir. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure I could say I am, but I know I am willing for you to be damned for the glory of God. <laughs> <laughs> this God who is high above us, who predestines all things whatsoever come to pass, you know, from eternity past, that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, all that, everything fought, works together for the good of those who know God and are called according to his purpose, who love God. Uh, all things work out just right. So what? That, well, look at the illustrations we gave earlier on the problem of pain. So what? Your child was killed in a car accident. Give glory to God. That's fine. God is in the heavens. We're down here on earth. We don't know. You just glorify God. Okay, so what? You know, your husband um, got shot by an overzealous police officer. Just give glory to God. Get over it and move on. You know, be content with what you have. God's sovereign. He's in control. He knows exactly what's happening. When you fall in a hole and you break your leg, you just say, thank you, Lord, that that's over with. I know it had to happen. It was predestined from eternity past for that to happen. I'm so glad I'm through that now. Live your life that way. No. Our God is not this great Oz, this huge computer brain pushing all the buttons and keeping all the trains running on time. Our God is personal. He is, we are in his image. We can relate to him. We can pray with our hearts, not just our heads. He is mindful of our frame. He knows that we are but dust. Our God is not merely transcendent. He is very close to us. He has a heart of compassion. Does he really have emotions, whatever, so he can change? Whatever? 
he reveals himself to our understanding as though he does have emotions. He weeps over Jerusalem in the person of, his Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I was like a mother hen. I wanted to gra- gather you, my chicks, under my wings, but you wouldn't have anything to do with it. We can grieve the Holy Spirit because he cares about us. So cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. And the harder thing for me to remember and for me. I really don't have as much trouble believing that he cares for you. I struggle believing that he cares for me. But he does. His God is with him, not just above him. And his enemies are beneath him. So the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. That's tough. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. So much for the theory that, well, the lions just weren't hungry. You know, Daniel, I can't believe you got away with all that, but we should have starved those lions a little more before we threw you in that lion's den. Oh, no, they were hungry. They just couldn't open their mouths because of the work of an invisible angel and the work of an invisible but all-powerful God. And as soon as the bad guys come, get thrown in there, then they don't even hit the floor before the lions have crushed them and eaten them. No, it was God. It wasn't the lions. It wasn't Daniel with a charming um, flute. No, it was God that did that. So here are his enemies beneath him. They are beneath his feet. He is vindicated, and they are on the short side of all that transpires. There are great temptations to us when this happens in our lives. Temptations to vengeance. And we all know what Romans chapter 12 says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You do not repay. Do not take revenge. It is not your responsibility. God is the judge. He will repay. No, you overcome evil with good. Or as the Lord Jesus said, you love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. You do not try to exact vengeance on them. Very difficult for us. There's a huge temptation to revenge, and yet we're told to resist it and not to go there, not to fall into that temptation to revenge. Because by overcoming evil with good and doing a kind thing instead of it, you will heap coals of fire on the heads of those who are opposed to you, who are your peers or your enemies at this point. Overcome evil with good. Show kindness. So what is that saying? Is that saying show kindness and then they'll get it even worse? The coals will be even hotter when they get, when they get theirs. And they will get theirs. So just think of that. They're going to get theirs. They're going to get theirs. That doesn't sound like the spirit of my Savior who said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I think the spirit of that Savior, uh, that Savior, that's the Jesus I know, right? If Tim were here, he would tell us that. The Jesus I know is doing good things for people that are doing bad things because he wants them to have a spark of repentance, something to go off, and they are shamed at their ill treatment of him or another, and they come to their knees in repentance and say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, which is the very first step of a salvation. Well, finally, his world before him. King Darius wrote all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. 
His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. God cares for the whole world. He wants the world to be covered with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Until that day, all of us need to have a global concern. We're not just concerned for Memphis. We're not just concerned for our little part of the world. We're concerned for the whole world, that that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, might be answered. And so the temptation is to provincialism, just to care about my province, my little part of the world. We resist that temptation as well. The end of the whole matter is the supremacy of knowing God. I've listed a number of verses there for you, as well as some authors who point me toward, I want to know God. I want to know God. I'll just close with this since we're out of time. John 17, 3. Our Lord Jesus, in praying for us before he was crucified, said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, that we may know God and walk with God, seek him, pant after him like a deer after the water brooks. We pant after God. I've got to have God or I will die. I need to have time alone with God. That is the cry of the man and his God. And of what Augustine said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let's pray. Father, show us the application that is right for this day for each person here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.